You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Revenaugh, head of the section of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Revenaugh is the director of the Rush Facial Nerve Disorder and Rehabilitation Program, as well as co-director of the Rush Cosmetic Center. He also serves as the patient safety and quality officer for the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, where he leads efforts in improving quality and patient care. His clinical expertise and research interests include non-invasive and minimally invasive cosmetic procedures for facial rejuvenation, cosmetic and functional nasal surgery, rehabilitation for facial paralysis, and advanced facial reconstructive and microvascular surgery following head, neck, and skin cancer treatment. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Revenaugh. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you give us an overview of the facial and reconstructive surgery program at Rush? The facial plastic and reconstructive surgery program at Rush is housed in the head and neck department, and it offers a a comprehensive array uh, of treatment options for both cosmetic and reconstructive procedures involving the face. So as you mentioned in the introduction, it really covers everything from skin cancer reconstruction to cosmetic procedures. The uniqueness of it, I think, is that we operate specifically on the head and neck and, and have for our, essentially in our, our entire training and our entire career. I think the most important things to keep in mind as, as referring providers is the large kind of scope of what we're able to offer to their patients. And so it, it could be anything from someone with a facial nerve paralysis or even facial nerve disorder. Synchinesis is something that comes to mind that oftentimes patients and providers don't even realize that something that can be treated. Cancer reconstruction or even cosmetic surgery. Oftentimes patients with nasal breathing issues or just concerns for nasal procedures cosmetically don't often know where to go. And, and that's where primary cares can, can think of our division and our section as really a stopping point for really anything involving the face and head and neck that could be a functional or a cosmetic concern for patients. Rush has the most comprehensive facial plastic and reconstructive surgery group in Chicago. Can you talk about some of the ways this comprehensive approach translates to excellent patient care? What specifically makes Rush stand out? I think what makes Rush stand apart from peer institutions around the city and actually around the country is the fact that we have several really experts in the field. Myself, Dr. Smith, my partner, and Dr. Toriyumi is also a contributing surgeon at Rush here. And we all offer very specific, but also broad things for patients. So for example, the facial nerve disorders and rehabilitation program that we spearhead here was the first in the city of Chicago, and currently still the only that offers several procedures for patients to help them with facial paralysis, whether it be microvascular procedures to help with facial movement. In fact, we're pioneering procedures for synchinesis or abnormal facial movements after paralysis that are actually being done nowhere else in the country currently. That being said, besides the full gamut, I think everything that we do, the fact that we do cosmetic surgery 
and reconstructive surgery only in the head and neck area really allows us to build our skill set off of other things. Every time I'm doing a reconstructive procedure, we're thinking about how can we make this cosmetically look the best and then vice versa, the cosmetic procedures, we really want form and function to be married together. I want to dive in a little bit about your specialization with facial reconstruction related to head, neck, and skin cancer. Can you talk about how you work with a patient's oncology team and touch on some of the challenges in performing procedures around treated areas? Yeah, so that's another, I think, unique aspect at Rush that we have very robust cancer programs. Head and neck cancer and, and skin cancer, while sometimes skin cancer can obviously occur on the head and neck, they are two separate programs, head and neck cancer, uh, commonly we're thinking of aerodigestive cancers and skin cancers, we're thinking of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. But each program has a, a very comprehensive tumor conference that meets once a week where we're able to discuss multidisciplinary care for these patients. So I think that's a wonderful way for, for myself and the oncology teams to interact. For head and neck cancer, and even for skin cancer, the same department, dermatology for skin cancer, head and neck oncology for head and neck uh, surgical oncology, we're all in the same department. So it's almost daily that we stop in the hallway and discuss patients or touch base about different issues that are going on. We kind of intimately work together through the tumor conferences, but then also just the day-to-day interactions. Obviously, these areas of the body are super important. I can think of nowhere else in the body where form and function is so intimately related. I mean, obviously, the face is where we have most of our senses, right? Smell, taste, hearing, sight. And changing areas of the face or head and neck for oncologic reasons, removing cancers, reconstructing, can affect any of those senses, much less how a patient looks or how a patient can interact with the world. And so it's very important that we handle all those factors when we're talking about oncologic care with the patient. It's not just removing the tumor and that's the end of it. Oftentimes it's removing the tumor and then reconstructive procedures and then potentially therapy afterwards. There's a lot of things that go into it. As you mentioned, given the precision under which you operate, can you talk about some of the research being done at Rush about how close you can perform reconstructions? That's another unique aspect of the facial plastic section at Rush is that we really are all very dedicated to academic research, teaching research, really figuring out what is going to be the best care for patients. And our research touches on a lot of these questions, both cosmetically and reconstructive. From a reconstructive aspect, actually, we just published in Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, one of the preeminent plastic surgery journals, some guidelines around skin cancer reconstruction. Obviously, skin cancer affects tens of thousands of people every year, and removing the skin cancer has a lot of research behind it. Reconstructing it doesn't have as much, and so I worked on a task force with other plastic surgeons, with eye doctors, with dermatologists to really create guidelines around what are the best practices for skin cancer reconstruction. So we're really doing what is most informed from a research perspective for our patients. That's just one aspect. Head and neck cancer, we formed a enhanced recovery after surgery program, which essentially is a multimodal and kind of longitudinal plan for patients when they're diagnosed with cancer through their surgery about how we're going to best enhance their recovery. Things like making sure nutrition is optimized as it can be before surgery, 
pain management after surgery. Our program was one of the first in the country to publish rather dramatic results of pain relief after surgery without using narcotic pain relievers. Our patients were leaving the hospital after big surgeries, not on any narcotic pain medication, which obviously has potential habit forming and dependence issues, but they were also leaving without narcotic pain medication, but with reduced pain compared to those that were getting narcotic pain medications. I think these are some of the research ways that we can really inform our care with patients. When you talk about cosmetic surgery, things like nasal function after rhinoplasty is something that we're actively studying. And even more esoteric things like perception of people's faces after reconstructive or cosmetic surgery, both their own perception or their own patient reported outcome, but also the perception of lay people. How do they perceive someone else's face as they're recovering from a surgery? And these things can all help inform how we best take care of patients and then hopefully build on themselves to really help make Rush the center for facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. I want to jump back and ask you if you could go into a little bit more depth about the guidelines that you developed around facial reconstruction. What does that entail specifically? The guidelines were for facial reconstruction, specifically after skin cancer resection. Commonly, skin cancer is removed, and for most non-melanoma skin cancers, removal is really the the definitive procedure. Now, there's certain caveats to that, and that's also why coming to a, a place like Rush and a program like ours, we can tease out some of those things and make sure that the patient needs a evaluation of their lymph nodes, that that's done, or that proper surveillance is accomplished afterwards. For melanoma cancers, the melanoma care is changing rapidly. We have a great surgical oncology team here with Dr. O'Donohue that takes care of melanoma. And really making sure those patients are plugged in with the right doctors long-term is very helpful. But specifically, getting back to non-melanoma skin cancers, really removal, if it's a non-complicated, non-immunosuppressed patient, then really removal is the definitive procedure. Now, if it's a large skin cancer that may involve a more extensive reconstruction, and the guidelines were really trying to to really answer some questions that have been out there and some differences in practices around the country and how we treat these reconstructive patients. For example, if a patient has a non-melanoma skin cancer removed from their nose, how quickly does that reconstruction need to be done? If we wait a couple days, which is maybe more convenient for the patient, is that going to negatively impact the reconstruction? Non-melanoma skin cancer commonly affects patients over the age of 60. And a lot of those patients have comorbid conditions, heart issues, they're on blood thinners. Should we continue blood thinners during the reconstructive procedure? Is it safer to take them off it? Is there a bleeding risk? How should we treat pain after these reconstructive procedures? Should we be using narcotics or should we avoid them? And these are some of the answers that we were seeking when this task force was put together. And as I said, it was a national task force, plastic surgeons, facial plastic surgeons, oculoplastic surgeons, Mohs surgeons and dermatologists um, that treat skin cancer. It took, uh, gosh, about three and a half years to get everything put together. We would meet, discuss potential questions come up with defined research items, and then go back to the literature that's been already written about skin cancer and see if we can compile all that together and get to what is a more definitive answer to really inform other physicians as to how should we treat these patients. They were just published, but some of the things that came out of it is that we don't need narcotics to treat pain after these reconstructions. We shouldn't take patients off blood thinners unless there's a very compelling reason because it may be more risky to take them off blood thinners. We should be doing, which 
to be completely honest, in plastic surgery and facial plastic surgery, we are not good at looking at our own outcomes. And that's one of the big things that we do here at Rush is really look at patient-reported outcome measures. But we should be doing those for skin cancer reconstruction. We should be asking patients three, six months after the reconstruction, well, how do you think it looks? How are you feeling? How is your function? Often patients are reconstructed and that's the end of it. And they may have a concern that isn't quite addressed and they feel like that's just how it should be. And certainly our focus at Rush and what we're trying to show nationally is it should be really patient-centered, that if there is still a lingering functional issue or concern of the patient, even from a cosmetic perspective, we should figure that out and number one, address it, but number two, ascertain how in the future we can avoid those issues. I want to talk about the patient side of things for a moment. Obviously, we've discussed the technical and surgical expertise that you need to have as a provider to be able to take care of these procedures. But on the patient side of things, I imagine that there's an emotional burden in in undergoing these procedures and then the after effect of what happens following surgery. I'm wondering how is mental health care incorporated for patients who are undergoing facial reconstruction or for those who have facial paralysis or disfigurement? Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think if you spend half a day in our clinic, you'll really realize how intimately mental health is with facial function. It seems intuitive that obviously if you have an issue with facial movement or a disfigurement of your face, it's going to affect your mental health. But it is much more a nuance than that. I use our facial nerve patients as an example. Patients that have facial nerve injuries, oftentimes it will recover, but the recovery can leave the patient with synkinesis. And that synkinesis can take multiple forms. So it could be twitching that is noticeable or abnormal movements. If, for example, a patient closes their eye, the corner of the mouth kind of puckers, or when they eat, their eye involuntarily closes. These can be such subtle things that untrained observers may not even notice it. But coupled with that oftentimes is, and it's hard for patients to explain, but it's really just like an awareness of their face. They're walking around with one half of their face feeling tighter or just They're just aware of the movements or the abnormal movements of that face, even if it's not visible to another observer. That really affects their quality of life. That's just something that really can't be seen unless you're looking very closely, or oftentimes you may not even be able to see it. But it's things like that that every patient carries with them. And so even if it's a cosmetic surgery, there's perhaps changing something that they're unsatisfied with or boosting their self-esteem or just trying to look a little bit like the age that they feel. These things are intimately involved in a patient's psyche and just the way they interact with the world. Those are some more nuanced examples, but then you go to the other end of the spectrum, somebody that has complete facial paralysis where half their face does not move at all, and now they can't express any emotion. Or even at the other end of it, not only can they not express any emotion, but they actively suppress their emotions because when they do express an emotion, let's say they smile, half their face smiles, the other half does nothing. And actually that accentuates how different they look. And we're actually doing some studies right now about how even this affects lay people. We talk about kind of biases or kind of micro expressions that we don't even realize that we're doing when you stare too long at somebody because you're trying to figure out, well, what's going on with their face? Patients internalize that. And so they go out in public and they have this feeling that everybody's staring at you because you're different because your face looks strange. So then you actively suppress your emotions so it looks less strange. And that actually kind of cycles around and leads to depression. There's lots of good studies showing that the depression anxiety amongst patients with facial 
deformities or facial paralysis is much higher than the general population. Knowing that, we really strive to make sure that any patient is plugged in with the mental health care that they need. Just as every issue is different for the patient, there's different avenues that we may try to get them to for their assistance or head neck cancer. We have a wonderful psychosocial oncology department. And I just had a patient that was in the hospital and she was having some issues with recovery and concerns as she leaves the hospital. And we had somebody from psychosocial oncology come and speak with her. And she said it helped tremendously to deal with some of the emotions that she's feeling, validate some of the things and think about it from a different route. I think for any patients with head and neck cancer or skin cancer, that's a wonderful resource that we have. And commonly they're plugged in very early, even before surgery, to help cope with the diagnosis. Things like facial paralysis, we have psychologists and psychiatrists that we will refer to for patients with concerns around their facial paralysis. And then if you get down to the other end of the spectrum, back to things that may seem to a layperson is more minor, we see patients for cosmetic requests all the time. Sometimes patients with cosmetic requests or even functional requests may fall into a category of body dysmorphic disorder, which is a diagnosable disorder that surgery is not the answer for them. Mental health care oftentimes is. We have to try and figure out which patients that may fall into that category and offer them the assistance that they need. And again, I think at Rush, we have a really good ability to get people over to mental health providers that can be helpful to them. And as I mentioned earlier, we really are very focused on patient-reported outcome measures. And some of those patient-reported outcome measures, we can kind of see that. As we look at the surveys the patient is filling out for us, you may be able to see that that they're kind of skewing towards either a, a dysmorphia or towards a depression anxiety, and that we want to address that in our visit and get them to the proper help if they need it. Regarding cosmetic surgery, can you talk about the more recent increase in demand for these kinds of procedures? Can you talk about what the drivers are for this or what roles that apps such as Facetune play into it? Yeah, this is a really fascinating topic for me, and I could talk about this for hours. I had a very keen interest in it before the pandemic, just the whole idea of facial perception and what drives people to pursue these procedures and what benefits they get from it. And when the pandemic started, I think across the country, plastic surgeons and facial plastic surgeons all looked at each other and said, boy, this is going to be bad, that patients aren't going to be pursuing cosmetic procedures because we're just all worried about staying safe and keeping our families safe. But actually, the pandemic had quite the opposite effect. And we saw after the initial lockdowns were lifted, a dramatic resurgence in interest in cosmetic surgery and elective surgery in general. Some of our research has gone into really looking at why maybe this is and how it changed. Initially, we thought, well, Everyone's wearing a mask, so everyone's going to come in and be concerned about their upper eye area that maybe that looks a little bit more aged, and that's the only thing that other people are seeing. We actually looked at that querying Google search terms and seeing, well, what are people searching for and using that as kind of a marker of how interested they are in, in cosmetic procedures. We found that it was not the case that they were interested in a particular part of the face. It's that across the board, cosmetic facial procedures were up. And actually, the American Society of Plastic Surgery just published their numbers for the last year. And it, it also mirrors what we were seeing, that facial procedures year over year were markedly increased before the pandemic to the pandemic than other, say, like body type procedures, body augmentation, and things like that. It's probably multifactorial. Number one, patients 
had, and I still hear this today, that they have a lot more recovery time. They are maybe working from home. They don't have to clock in at a certain time. And so maybe they can take an extra afternoon or a couple of days off and not really miss out on work things that they were supposed to be doing. And they also have recovery time. They aren't expected to be in the office, or if they are, they have a mask on. And so they can hide some swelling or healing scar from a, a facial procedure. And so I think that's one driver. I think another driver undoubtedly is the amount of time that we are all spending on virtual platforms and the fact that we are looking at each other on WebEx, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, whatever. We're looking at our faces much longer and in a much different way than we ever have. I use myself as an example, being on early on on a Zoom meeting and looking at a bunch of my colleagues with my face in the middle and my colleagues all around it and thinking, gosh, why do I look older than all my colleagues my same age? It's, it's natural for us to kind of compare our faces to other faces, especially when it's right in front of us. I was thinking about this the other day. We also don't often look at our faces moving. Maybe you look in the mirror as you're getting ready in the morning, but are you looking at your face, talking to other people for an hour on an end? Um, no, and that is a very, very new thing. And so that has caused patients to be more critical of certain things about their own facial appearance than maybe they have been in the past. And then lastly, I think probably that the pandemic has just upended traditional cycles. We did another study where we looked at the traditional cycles of cosmetic surgery. And it was kind of a predictable pattern year over year for the past like 10 years. Nasal procedures, rhinoplasty, typically are pursued by younger patients, usually between the age of 18 and maybe mid thirties. So those patients often are in school. So we would see a dramatic increase in demand for something like rhinoplasty in the summertime because patients are back from college and they have some recovery time and vice versa aging face procedures like facelift, neck lift, eyelid lift, traditionally they, they would be sought after in the wintertime because maybe patients were not going to be out on vacation or out in the sun. And these are typically older patients that are retired or nearing retirement. And it's a good time to recover and not be facing many people. There's not a lot of events going on in the wintertime. Traditionally, the pandemic happened and all these traditional cycles were upended. Kids aren't in school. Colleges were not in session. They were virtual. People aren't expected to be at work. You can recover anywhere. And so we noticed that procedures across the board were just going up, whether it be facelifts or rhinoplasties or whatever. And that has been mirrored around the country. We just looked at our own numbers and a procedure like neck lift, facelift went up 600% in our practice year over year. We expect maybe a 10 or 15% increase as the practice grows, but 600% certainly not anything we would have expected. And then how are people using those apps like Facetune in either before they come in for a procedure or maybe after? How do they utilize those apps? That is also another unique thing that the technology has delivered to us is this ability to change certain features of our face. You can argue benefits, detriments of this ability, but patients are seeing it. And we're seeing it when you look at reports of Instagram and celebrities that many of their pictures that are posting are altered. Certainly, there's probably concern long-term about this effect of seeing constantly altered pictures. But a benefit to facial plastic surgeons is patients can look at their own pictures and maybe adjust them in a way that suggests what their goals are. That's a very important part of the discussion with cosmetic surgery patients 
is what are their goals for this particular surgery? Because we definitely want to understand that with them so we can deliver. And you want to understand if their goal maybe is something that can't be delivered. I definitely don't want to do a surgery on a patient where they're expecting some result and it's just not something I can do and we don't get that result and then they're unhappy. These apps have had an ability for patients to do that. It's very common in rhinoplasty. Rhinoplasty is commonly pursued for concerns for the dorsum or the bridge of the patient's nose or the tip. And so often patients will come in with a picture maybe where they used an app to remove the dorsum to show me kind of what they're thinking of. We do this with patients in the office. We have photo editing software that's made to help depict some of these changes. And patients that come in, I will sit down with them and make some changes and ensure that we're on the same page. That's a, a definite benefit of it. I haven't seen many patients, it's been reported on the country, but I've, I personally haven't seen many where the a patient comes in with something that's just really not possible or they don't quite understand the surgery or the technology. Certainly some of these things you can do in the app, you can blend your face or make your skin look more consistent as far as the texture of it. Sometimes that can be done, but oftentimes it's not possible to make it look like that photograph. The concern is patients are going to start looking for procedures to pursue these things, and we can't, but I haven't seen that too much yet. As the technology gets better and better, it will be interesting to see where things go. And I suppose you could think of a world where patients can alter all of their photographs, and so maybe they don't want to pursue surgery as much because they can present themselves to the world, at least digitally, in that manner that they feel. But currently, I would say the apps, we're definitely seeing more and more of it. It has been overall so far a, a good thing. You know, one last thing I wanted to ask you about. I was curious about, as you've been performing these cosmetic procedures, have the notions of what is masculine and feminine or what is considered attractive changed over time? And if they have, how has that altered the way you perform cosmetic or reconstructive surgery? Yeah, that's another great question because it kind of falls into some of our interests and studies and certainly my interest in facial perception. So masculine and feminine specifically, we haven't looked at uh, with a fine-tooth comb yet, but I know other groups have and some of my colleagues at other institutions have started to look at this as gender-affirming surgery is becoming more sought after, really trying to answer what is masculine and what is feminine in facial features has been a priority as patients seek to give the appearance of their gender identity. It hasn't changed much throughout the years, but interestingly, the ideas of beauty has changed somewhat, and but then also not changed. We just published a study where we looked at basically nasal measurements and the typical canon of what is a beautiful nose was written about through the late 30s up until now. And commonly, it was written from a very Caucasian approach to the nose. And certainly, there's a myriad of differences between you know ethnic groups and nasal and facial features. The typical canon was really based on Caucasian noses. We tried to look back at people in, in media that were considered beautiful and do their noses fit into this canon or is it becoming a kind of a, a more broad category? And overall, we did find that they kind of fit into that idea of kind of what a beautiful nose will fit like, but obviously there's many exceptions across the board. And we think of supermodels that have very unique features that may be outside of a couple um, standard deviations outside what is kind of considered the norm, but we think they're beautiful because of those unique features. 
But overall, we found that the nasal proportions were not too far off from the canon. But the one thing that had changed was the way the nose relates to the lip. That may be because currently fuller lips are very much in vogue and fashionable. And so with the current uh, non-invasive fillers that people are pursuing, fuller lips have changed kind of the standard measurement between the lip and, and the nose. And that may be a transient thing. And we may see that the, the full lip trend kind of falls off and we skew back towards that canon. It is fascinating and trying to figure out why do we think these things are beautiful. And if you delve deeper into it, you can find some maybe learned reasons for it and maybe some innate reasons. And that's where it gets really kind of fascinating that babies and children seem to be more attracted to faces that the rest of us would say are more beautiful. Well, why is that? Is it because they're more symmetric? And does it somehow signal genetic diversity or health in people or just animals in general? This is still a very hot topic of study, but something that's fascinating to me. To answer the question, in masculine and feminine, the idea of what features are masculine and feminine has not changed much. I think also as gender identity has become a little more fluid and acceptable to be fluid, those lines may be somewhat blurred and people don't have to fit into one or the other. But the canon of what's beautiful overall in facial features, whether it be masculine or feminine, has been remarkably kind of consistent and probably has more to do with averageness of the face and symmetry of the face than it has to do with masculine or feminine features. So interesting. Thank you so much for our conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. 